I'll be transitioning into a role helping develop a science and sustainability program at a university near where I live. I have a currently a science background, but I had been looking for opportunities to do more than science or other roles in addition to science. So this job sounds like an incredible blend of different things, and I'm really curious about it and excited to get started. That's Jenny. Later on in the episode, you're going to hear exactly what she did to make her career change without having to start over. Here's a hint. She discovered the transferable experience she already had, so she didn't have to go back to school or start from the bottom or really anything else that most of us don't want to do. But why are we so concerned with not having to start over? Well, let's be honest. Starting over sucks. Seriously, let's just call it what it is. It's hard. Sometimes it's good to get way outside your comfort zone. We've talked on that a lot in the podcast in the past. And I just recently started jujitsu. And even though I'm in really good shape and it still took many months to get through that initial learning curve, it's been hard. It's been, it's been fun too. One of our students just told me that she's been learning Spanish. She's never spoken it before, but she wants to, and absolutely going to put her outside of her comfort zone. Right now, those are, those are more fun things. But it's different when it comes to your career. It's even harder to start over and sometimes not very fun, especially when you've grown accustomed to, let's say, a certain lifestyle or amount of income every single month. Here's the thing. You don't actually have to start over in your career, at least not in the way that you think you do. There's a completely different way to do it without having to go back to school, without starting from the bottom. What most people don't realize is that there is a completely different way to think about this. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. This is the second episode in our series on how to get unstuck without starting over. In this episode, we're going to break down for you how your skills and experiences and knowledge can be so much more transferable than you think they are. And if you haven't already listened to episode one, it's right before this in your podcast feed. Definitely go back, take a listen. It will give you a primer. And if you have listened, then you already know that a lot of people think that transferable skills could be the answer and maybe even the holy grail to satisfying career change. And they can be, but probably not in the way that you might think. Here's why. A lot of the time when people come to us, they fall into one of two categories. Either they say, I just need someone to help me articulate my skills and experiences and make them transferable and help me do that on my LinkedIn profile or resume. Or they think that they're going to have to go get five years or 10 years of new experiences before they can ever find a role that they really want to be in. In the first case, that's not how it works in reality. And the second usually isn't true either. So how do you go from being a marketing project manager to leading a division of marketing or from a research scientist to being a director of outreach at a university 
It's subtle. And although many people that make these changes will tell you it's totally worth it, it's also not always easy. Laura Morrison did this too. She was actually leading a team of sustainability engineers, and she moved into product development for a human development company. In that eight and a half years, I had four different roles, and the new challenges in the new role were exciting. But the length of excitement I had from just learning something new kept getting shorter and shorter. So I think that's one thing that changed. And then by the end, I didn't actually feel like I was learning that much anymore. And for me, if I'm not learning, I'm not engaged. And I work with a lot of people who are really passionate, and I almost found myself having to pretend to be passionate when I wasn't really feeling it. So that was pretty hard on me. By the end of this past role, I had 10 people reporting to me. A lot of them were early in their career, and I wanted to do a good job of inspiring them. But because I wasn't inspired myself, it made me feel like I was being inauthentic to kind of hide the part of myself that wasn't engaged, that wasn't super passionate about our work anymore. And so it basically zapped all my energy where I would kind of put on this kind of extroverted fake smile at work every day and then come home and be unhappy. Do you remember when you started to realize that? Oh, I hate to admit this, but it was probably three years ago. And, you know, at the time our company was going through some management changes and, you know, there are other life things going on. You know, I was trying to start a family and all of that combined was just exhausting. And so I think I knew that it wasn't a good fit and I've known that for a long time. But again, without knowing what to do next or even how to think about what to do next, I just felt really stuck. So yes, this process, it, it's hard. But you know what else is freaking hard? Staying in a job that isn't a great fit for you. Or settling. Settling. That's pretty hard too. From the outside, someone looking at my resume would be impressed, but I was looking at it and I hated it, right? I wasn't proud of anything that I had been doing because I wasn't happy doing it. And that didn't mean I didn't understand that there were some impressive things on there. It just didn't feel like me and it didn't feel impressive to me because I didn't enjoy the process of doing it. And so I think a lot of that lack of confidence is like tied into kind of the anxiety of trying to figure it out, right? What if there is nothing for me? What if I'm always unhappy at a job? And I think there is this whole mentality out there that that's normal to kind of be unhappy in your job. Okay, clearly Laura decided not to settle. But the thing that I want you to take away is that if it's going to be hard either way, whether you are staying staying in a job that really isn't a perfect fit, or whether making the change is what is hard, then you might as well have it be the way that you want. Here's why. Listen to Laura talking about how she feels about her job, which she's now made a transition to, which has been a great fit for her. Yeah, I think it's a happy exhausted or a depressed exhausted, right? So I think that manifests itself in a lot of ways. So I'm really busy, but I'm also very happy, which means I'm focused on other parts of my life and improving those areas like, you know, taking care of myself, exercising, eating better, any sort of personal development. I feel like I have more of an appetite for because I'm in a a different brain space where, you know, I'm happy at work. I'm challenged at work. I'm proud of the work I'm doing and the learning. So that's kind of counter to 
the state I was in before where I was really, I was almost getting down on myself for not making a change so much so that it impacts the rest of my life because I was feeling I, loss of confidence, loss of motivation, kind of just generally discouraged overall. Okay. Listening to Laura before and after, <laughs> it's, it's totally different, right? Okay. So how does this happen? That's the question that we want to pull back the curtain on. Here's Laura again, describing a bit about what she wanted initially and what she did next. You know, I think I had this idea of the company culture I wanted, right? I'm a casual person. I like wearing jeans to work. I like flexible hours and wanted a ping pong table in my office, which is just kind of a funny indication of the type of culture I was looking for, right? But I didn't know what work I wanted to do, right? So it's great to have a good company culture. And I had that before, but it's not enough because I wanted to work that was actually exciting to me as well. What point did you start to see that light come back? Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, there were a couple people I spoke with and their companies were interesting and they had job openings and they were offering to help me get my resume in the door. And I, I kind of said no, right? I said, you know, I'm not sure this is the wrong fit, but I'm not sure it's the right fit yet. And I don't want to apply to something I'm not super excited about. So like, I need some time, I need to, to figure that out. And that was hard to do as well, because I wasn't particularly happy, the idea of an end was tempting, right? And that could be really cool. And I'm sure would be a great opportunity, but maybe didn't hit the lifestyle choices I wanted, or the day to day work that I wanted. So I think what changed is that when I started talking to people at PI, I was not just excited about the company, or the people, but all of a sudden, the role sounded exciting too. And I talked to a lot of people there. And like everyone I talked to was so willing to give me their time and their kind of openly tell me about what the day to day was. And I just it was such a great group of people. I mean, I got introduced through a friend of a friend and the kind of head of marketing there, like easily handed me three more names of people I could talk to on the team. And that in itself was kind of an indication to me of how generous kind of the, the culture is. Because when you're busy, and, and of course, startups and everyone is busy, right? Especially at a startup culture. Yeah. And when they're willing to not just give you their time, but also time of their team members and other colleagues, I think that says a lot about the company. So all of those things combined started getting me excited about a job at PI specifically, which was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, but then also, of course, a little stressful because if after all this and I've talked to all these people, if that's the job and the company I'm excited about uh, and I'm putting kind of some eggs in that basket, that puts a lot of pressure on myself well, to hope that it works out. Okay, that's Laura's story, right? But you've actually heard lots of these stories on our podcast. Maybe you just didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes. In in every single one of these scenarios, every single story that we've told on our podcast, it was pretty much the same situation. We helped each person use their existing skills, experience, knowledge, degrees to be able to make a transition into something new. We also... What's not always evident is we bring forward those areas that they already have that are important or are a priority for them into their next role. For example, maybe they already have in their current job a lot of flexibility that 
uh, allows them to be able to be there for kids or a family or if they're already paid really well and they don't want to take a step backwards. And maybe this is true for you too. We call these areas that you want to carry over into your next role, your career keepers. And if you were to turn this into a formula, here's what it would look like or sound like. It would be existing experience, what you already have, plus those career keepers, those things you want to keep, plus your missing must-haves, what you need and what you're currently missing in your job. Add those three together, existing experience plus career keepers plus your missing must-haves, that equals your ideal transition. That's it. That's a formula. Okay. I know this is oversimplifying it, but that helps us focus on what we actually need to help people make this type of transition. And this could be true for you too. And we actually use a tool with our students and clients that we created to visually represent this whole formula. And we call this the ideal career profile. This ideal career profile helps us begin to know where we can be looking for these places that need our unique set of experiences, skills, and also provide us with what's missing. Now, here's the crazy thing about this that we've observed over and over and over again. When we have that ideal career profile and we have it on paper, on purpose, those areas that are so important to you that you want and need from a company in your personal life, whatever those things are, we have it on paper, on purpose. That gives us a clear idea of what we must have in your next role. And then here's the crazy part. Once we have that idea, it becomes so much easier to be able to begin looking at where we can find that. Because guess what? If you don't know what you want, it's really difficult to get to what you want. So this helps provide some of those initial answers. We only focus on those areas that people enjoy immensely when it comes to you know, what what they want to focus their time on or those that complement what they want to move into. Now, the reason we can do this again and again is simple, and it's far more simple than what you realize. It's because your skills, experience, and knowledge is actually far, far more transferable than what you realize. That's why this works. Trust me, I personally worked in lots of industries, manufacturing, government, retail, agriculture, technology, education, just to name a few. And I've also worked with lots of roles and hired many, many hundreds of other people that uh, are in roles that I haven't worked in too. Your experience is so much more transferable than what you realize. You just don't know it. And sometimes hiring managers don't know it too. So how do we how do we make this whole idea of transferable skills and understanding what is an ideal career? How do we take that and make it tangible and bring it to reality? Or you might say, how do we make it happen? You see what I did there? Happened to your never mind. I'm Jenny. I live in a state with a lot of mountains in it. Jenny was a research scientist, and we got the pleasure of working with her. And also a quick fun fact, we actually supported Jenny through the entire process of her career change, and she's actually the person who we've worked with longer than anyone else. On average, a lot of the people that we work with are about four to eight months to transition, but we actually worked with Jenny almost 19 months, so we got to know her pretty well. And she's really accomplished and has a pretty insightful story. Well, I've had a pretty typical path as a scientist with a few added extras on the side. 
I did an undergraduate degree in biology. Then I took a few years and I actually taught a preschool science program, but then went to graduate school for more science, again, biology, ecology, conservation. And I got a PhD in that field and did a lot of outdoor research on mountain forest ecosystems and fire. With many of the aspects of those topics and the process of research, I really love. After finishing my PhD, I worked both in the education realm for a while and as a field biologist. So I had a a series of part-time jobs teaching college biology, which those were some great adventures and learning experiences. But I realized about halfway through graduate school that I didn't want the traditional career of a academic professor. My dad actually is an academic professor, and my grandfather was, and several family members. So I'd seen lots of examples of that career path, and I had been intrigued and thinking it's sort of in my genes and in my environment, but the more I learned and experienced from the inside as a grad student, the more I thought, I'm not sure this would be the perfect fit for me. So the problem also with my science studies was that I just could not help adding other topics and roles on the side. In the world of science, it's more typical to be a specialist, and it's seen as more focused and more productive and contributes more to the to the individual field. So my advisor was often questioning me, you know, why are you working in the campus writing center with all these <laughs> English majors? And I was What's your problem? Fun and yeah, intriguing and enlightening. And or why do you have so many side jobs? And I think it's detracting from your forward progress. And I'd say, well, it's sort of keeping me engaged and I love interacting across the whole campus. So we had a little bit of back and forth. My next step was to say to myself, all right, I'm going to try and find more of a pure research job and or more of a pure teaching job and sort of see how those feel when I kind of separate the components of research and education. I had several college teaching jobs that did this, and those were really rewarding because I could see the spark of excitement and discovery in the students and how energized they were to figure out I can do science. I do do science every day. Now I'm going to learn to do it systematically and and it'll let me find out new things and solve problems. I think I went into science and research for for two reasons. One is I genuinely love this process of investigation and discovery. And I really love the process of problem solving with science, both just in the simple cases of kids figuring out answers to their own questions or In my field, it's been tackling the problems of sustainable resource management, like forest management or water management or wildlife management, using science to help the resource managers identify the most effective strategies and the less effective strategies. So I was and still am really enthusiastic about that part. I think The second reason why I stayed in science and research was sort of to live up to the expectations of everybody who had guided me along the way and helped me pursue this track. Now, as we were working with Jenny, I thought this next part was really interesting. Even though Jenny knew 
that she needed a role where she could teach and share her love of investigation and science, she actually felt like she should stay for years after she began considering making a change. I didn't want to let down my family, which is full of scientists and academics, my advisor, my professors, my peers, other women in science particularly, I felt like I need to sort of live up to the expectations, sort of fulfill the investment that I and they have made in this research track. Okay, I want to first acknowledge that feeling of not wanting to let go of using your experience. It's filled with emotion. And this is this is a real thing. Behavioral economists even have a name for this phenomenon. It's called the sunk cost fallacy. If we removed the emotion and the feelings that come along with investing lots of time into a degree, a profession, or maybe even an industry, like if someone went through law school but discovered that they despise the legal profession but still keeps going on as a lawyer because they feel like they've put in all this time and effort into law school and that it would be a waste if if they didn't use it, right? Okay, so the sunk cost fallacy points out that it doesn't matter what happened in the past or what you invested in, or dent invest. It has no real bearing on your future. It has no real bearing on reality going forward. It only feels like it does. And the crazy thing is, all this feeling and emotion is what makes us human beings do some things that just sometimes don't make any sense. Here's an example that was pretty close to home. My father-in-law retired as a cabinet maker and general contractor, so I helped him post on Craigslist all of his tools and equipment that he no longer needed. He'd accumulated a ton of equipment over the years, and when much of it was brand new, he had, at the time, paid top dollar for it. So, for example, he had a, a planer that he paid $3,500 for new, and he had a ton of offers on this thing to, to sell it for $800, $1,000, $1,200. But he said he'd rather haul it to the dump and set it on fire rather than sell it for less than what he felt it was worth. Okay, of course, this makes no rational sense. Of course, he should accept the $1,200 instead of setting it on fire. But that's the type of thing that we do as humans. We don't always behave rationally. I've done it. You've done it. And when it comes to sunk costs, we've all done it somewhere along the line, even if we don't realize it. In Jenny's case, she felt like she had achieved a lot, not just for herself, but also for women by being represented in male-dominated areas of research science. And for this reason, it was important to her that she was still getting to use much of her background as a scientist. Also, at the same time, she had some experience as a teacher. And in many ways, this was much, much more of the areas that she really loved. So how do you combine all of these needs and feelings along the way with reality? Well, here's how it happened for Jenny. What began to shift for me was that first I realized that when I was working with manager partners who had problems to solve, it wasn't sort of purely the scientific data that they needed yeah. in doing their job. It was also connections with scientists, relationships with scientists, input from scientists that was more than just numbers. The whole situation was much more complicated than it seems from the outside. The huge insight for me was that in my science role at my home agency, I was definitely not rewarded 
in the metrics of contributing to complex problem-solving efforts. I am rewarded for the number of scientific papers I publish in scientific journals on scientific results. So the more I got involved in the people side of the equation and the relationships and the collaborations, the less time I was investing in completing and writing up and publishing results. And of course, the more complex the problems, the harder it is to get clean, publishable scientific papers out of them. So I was kind of getting against the checklist of performance that I'm evaluated by. I was not doing the things that were expected from my position. And I was finding meaning in what I was doing. But I was also wishing that I could have a role in which part of the purpose or the point was to invest in the relationships and the collaborations. um, And it wasn't seen as a distraction or a delay. One of the insights I had, again, was from something of a popular psychology type book about how there are some people in the world, I realized that I can just acknowledge that I'm one of them, who are unusually highly tuned into other people's expectations. And uh, I know a lot of podcast guests have have alluded to this, and it's really helpful. Um, I think that the particular book or sort of framework that I found helpful is by Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness and habits and has recently published a book called The Four Tendencies about how people respond to external and internal expectations. And I've always sort of envied people who are very tuned into their own internal compass and expectations and goals. But my tendency has always been to try and do what other people expect or think is reasonable. And I think somehow I had to, it was very comforting to me to read more about the fact that there are more people than me in the world that share this, um, I guess, orientation. And you don't have to beat yourself up and think that you're sort of weird or weak-willed. In the end, Jenny accepted a role at a university leading their scientific outreach programs. But hold on, hold on. Did you catch the subtlety in how this happens? I actually want to break this down into steps, what we just covered in Jenny's story. Okay, so first thing we did, we helped Jenny identify what she's great at and what was most important to her. We then helped her use the information to build an initial list of organizations. She began the process of getting to know the people in these organizations. And by the way, this step simultaneously helps with two things. First, it provides valuable feedback to you as a career changer about if you're heading the right direction and whether or not you should be continually interested in, say, a specific organization or industry or type of role. Now, the second thing it does, if you decide that you are, in fact, interested, you now already have the beginnings of a real relationship with somebody on the inside of that organization. Awesome, right? Okay, now the last thing that we did is at this point, she'd already aligned herself with organizations that valued what she had to offer because she systematically eliminated the others off the list. Pretty cool, right? Most of us believe that if we're gonna make a career change, 
the way transferable skills works is that you're going to make some resume magic with your laptop by articulating your experience and accomplishments in just such a way that in less than 30 seconds after you attach your resume and hit the submit button, you're going to get a call from your dream job. Well, shock and surprise, uh, I know it, it doesn't work that way. The difference in our approach here that we talked about with Jenny and with Laura and what's gone on behind the scenes and most of the other stories that you've heard on this podcast is that you have total ownership. Now, let me say that again. You you actually have total ownership in this process. That means that you know, you're not waiting on somebody else to pull your resume out of a magic stack and everything else that goes along with it. This means that you're the person seeking out the organizations, not them seeking out candidates. You're the one deciding if they stay on the list or get removed. And it's completely and utterly backwards from the conventional approach that almost everyone uses to find their jobs. But wait, 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 wait. Gallup says that 87% of people are not enamored with their jobs. Those are my words. It's not the exact words on the surveys that they use for the research. There's is cluttered with terms like engagement and being satisfied with my job. But let's just say that this means that 87% of people are not in love with their careers currently. Well, I suppose it comes as no surprise that if you're doing what almost everyone else is doing to get their next role, you're going to get what almost everyone else is getting which that's that 87%, right? A job that doesn't fit as well as you'd hope instead of a next step in your career that you're pumped about long after the honeymoon period wears off. Okay. In this episode, we've given you several examples of how people go through it, how this works in reality so that you don't have to start over and some unconventional ways to begin doing that. However, right here on the Happen to Your Career podcast, in episode three of our series on how to get unstuck without starting over, we're going to delve into exactly that. What do successful career changes with no experience actually look like? And what can you begin doing to make sure that you're not staying stuck, but also don't have to start over? Next week, we'll see you right here on Happen to Your Career. Until then, I am out. Adios. Adios.